Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm tops. How are you? I'm just happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, Donald Trump is out at SAG. That's right. Uh, after the Screen Actors Guild began whispering that it might want to kick the star of Home Alone 2, Zoolander, and Playboy Video Centerfold, colon, Playmate 2000 Bernola twins uh, out of the union, the former president currently facing a second impeachment trial decided that they couldn't kick him out of the club if he quit. So he quit. Uh, in a blistering letter to SAG president Gabrielle Carteris, uh, that's Andrea, uh, Andre, Andrea, Andrea uh, from Beverly Hills 90210 for those keeping track at, at home, uh, Trump slammed the union for, quote, your blatant attempt at free media attention to distract from your dismal record as a union. Your organization has done little for its members and nothing for me besides collecting dues and promoting dangerous un-American policies and ideas as, as, evident, as evident by your massive unemployment rates uh, and lawsuits from celebrated actors, end quote. Trump, who started his letter by asking who cares uh, if he gets kicked out of the union, obviously cares very, very much. And while I'm generally of the opinion that people should be allowed to associate with whomever they want, this does raise a slightly thorny question. SAG is not a social club. It's not a place for people to hang out and schmooze. It is at least nominally a union, one that should be dedicated for fighting uh, on behalf of all of its members. Right? Alyssa, as the show's resident communist, don't you think it's a little messed up that the Guild is showing such little solidarity for a longtime member whose legendary work on TV shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and The Nanny speaks for itself? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think um, SAG should kick Trump out. I think the, um, the steps they've taken to sort of ban him from reapplying as a member are sort of silly. Um, but it's also just patently not true that SAG-AFTRA has done nothing for Donald Trump. In his 2015 financial disclosure statements, he revealed that he got a $110,000 pension from them, which, you know, for a man who has $300 million in personal debt and, like, a tanking real estate and hospitality empire, like, he could probably use that money going forward. <laughs> so the idea that he has been somehow, like, abused and maligned by the union or that he's, like, not getting anything from them, considering the amount of acting work he actually does is like pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, no, I, and I broadly, I actually wrote a column about this um, that went up on Monday. You know, I think that everybody kind of wants their chance at repudiating Trumpism, right? And so for, if you're SAG-AFTRA, the, you know, stick that you have is to kick someone out of the union. If you're the Baseball Writers Association of America, you maybe vote against Kurt Schilling to join the Hall of Fame. Um, and I get that everyone kind of wants to like do their bit. Um, but some of this stuff is also just sort of silly or meaningless or kind of comes at the expense of, you know, the principle that an organization or, you know, an accolade is meant to support. And so, yeah, like, I actually don't think you should kick people out of unions for their politics, not least because that just there isn't like an enforceable standard you can set. I mean, maybe if your standard is like if a member is elected president of the United States and incites insur an insurrection against the his own government, then like you can throw him out of the union. But Whenever you start, you know, saying like, eh, maybe someone's politics mean that he shouldn't get into the Hall of Fame or, eh, you know, maybe he shouldn't be allowed to be a union member, um, you're both setting a standard that you just can't uphold neatly and consistently across 
the political spectrum in any sort of reasonable way. And you're also, frankly, sort of undermining what it is that you do or you stand for, right? I mean, if the qualification to be a member of SAG-AFTRA is that you, you know, work a certain number of days or whatever the specific criteria for membership is, like, you know, that that should probably be something you stick to. If the criteria for getting into the Hall of Fame is that you're, you know, talented above a certain level, and like, yeah, character considerations while you were playing are part of it technically, but like, Maybe don't muddy things. That doesn't actually send the political message that you think it does. Uh, Peter, what do you think about uh, the the union's efforts to rid itself of this troublesome troublesome Trump? I'm really, really upset that Home Alone 3 is now going to have to use a digital... Two. Home Alone 3. Home Alone 3. No, when they make the inevitable sequel starring an old... There's Macaulay already a Home Alone 3. Isn't it Home Alone 7, whatever that is there's then? Like, the there's a, there's like a million Home Alones. Home Alone Google Plus. That the next... That the Home Alone reboot... Okay. The dark and gritty Home Alone is going to have to use a digital drumpf and not, it's not going to be the real Donald Trump. It's going to be somebody who's like just close enough that we know it's Donald Trump, but they call him something else. To be um, fair, he's already getting edited out of Home Alone 2 for like political reasons. I mean, totally th- separate from this. I actually wanted to bring up um, here, which I find much more disturbing, uh, sort of desecrating the art of the past, even though like I, I don't care at all about the Home Alone films in any way um i am somewhat bothered by these efforts to like sort of remove his presence from pop culture history he should still be there i'm much more bothered by that actually than i am by this um you know uh, this again i i take Alyssa's point um quite seriously about the way that i i think what you said was you're setting a standard you can't uphold in a reasonable way and that's i think totally true but it's also the the fundamental problem with trump is that he's he's so weird and not just like he's not just so he's he's so bad in a particular and unusual way that he makes it kind of impossible to behave reasonably back right like a reasonable standard that covers nearly every possible human outcome and like normal case just doesn't cover Donald Trump and you look and you're like we set standards and we could we could on the one hand do the thing that we always do when people are bad or when we don't like them and just sort of say that's how we're going to proceed here and then on the other hand you're like but donald trump was president and like he is he's he's such an unusual case that he sort of calls for people to violate their own rules and make fools of themselves and like get themselves in trouble in some cases but also do so in ways that kind of totally make sense and it's it's just a huge problem i think for the whole sort of world of 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 dealing with him, right? Like for the, for everyone who's kind of trying to deal, who is trying to deal with him uh, it, it, as a cultural figure, for people who are trying to deal with him um, as a political figure, he just kind of defies all these categories. And he makes, he's so awful in such a particular way, right? Like normally when people are that awful, they're not the most powerful political actor in the in the entire country certainly and arguably in the world for four years they typically don't have the nuclear football and so what do you do about somebody who who is who is this sort of polarizing uh, at minimum even like even if you like donald trump even if you think he's actually all that okay like you have to admit he drives people nuts in a particular way in a unique way he is he's like uniquely off-putting to people and so what do you do about about the way that he is just sort of like that he's such 
that he just kind of defies all categories and reasonableness and makes people act in ways that like you can't say, oh, this is how we're going to act for everyone. Alyssa, I'm curious to get your take on this because I, I have thoughts on this. I mean, I, I, I kind of think that what you do with Trump is what you should have done all along, which is you starve him of the oxygen that clearly is what he needs to survive, right? I mean, to a certain extent, the letter that he wrote to the union quitting is just the desperate cry of a man who has had his Twitter feed taken away from him and just like needs somewhere to put all of the insults he's been workshopping because he's desperate. Um, Sad. And, yeah, and look, I am... You know, I and I have written this. I think Trump should absolutely remain in all pop culture forever, mostly to embarrass all of the people who tolerated him. Even back in the day when he was like calling for innocent teenagers to be executed for crimes they didn't admit and like, you know, sort of defaulting on business stuff. And I mean, American culture has a Trump like we are the frog and Trump boiled us very effectively, right? Like people sort of tolerated various degrees of his nonsense for years and then he became president of the United States. And what we should do now is what we should have done in the first place, which is basically ignore the guy, right? Like just absolutely starve him of controversies and oxygen. Like the healthiest thing that we can do for ourselves and for the American body politic is to just like let him molder in Mar-a-Lago like Citizen Kane, like, you know, without even Rosebud because the man has no, you know, emotional impulses at all, right? Like, let him die yeah. alone and forgotten as much as is possible um, and save the sort of exclusionary stuff or stuff where it really matters, right? Like, And yet, so before, okay. I, I want to hear what Sonny has to say here, but like, I'm not objecting to this segment, to be clear, but, and yet here we are talking about him and journalists are still writing about him all the time understandably because he now occupies a, a place in the history books of this country and of the world that you can't remove him from and he's he is we're gonna have an impeachment trial and you can't just pretend that it's not happening and yes sag after is not involved in the impeachment trial but but he's still there he's still he's still lingering his go the ghost of him as president is still lingering over all of this and i kind of i think it is a difficult problem to solve if you are in the business of talking about the stuff that people are interested in and that matters and the fact that donald trump was president is something that people are still interested in and also a a fact that still matters yeah i mean here's 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 my here's my uh kind of point and question at the same time uh, would anybody have thought, you know what, Donald Trump is in SAG, if not for the last week's story? Nobody nobody ever would have thought about this again. Nobody ever would have been like, is, is Donald Trump collecting a, a pension from SAG? Nobody would have thought about that. My, my second question is, what what are, what are the actual, are there actual standards to kick somebody out of SAG for for non-work-related things, like non-going non site? Like, did they kick OJ, Is was OJ Simpson in SAG and was he kicked out of SAG? after uh you know his his various troubles i like i'm i i i'd be curious to get a good history on this so if if any of our hollywood reporter friends are listening out there history of people kicked out of sag would be pretty interesting um but but the but the larger point and i i think i think Alyssa is totally right here is that this is not why sag exists the sag does not exist to uh to police the politics or even the behavior of its members i mean i like if we start kicking out every actor who makes a fool of themselves or every actor who does something that brings ill repute upon the union 
um, or every actor who gets embroiled in a controversy. I mean, look, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, do we really want to be litigating whether or not Army Hammer's cannibalism gets him removed from SAG? I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a thing we I mean, want to do. Again, slippery, slippery slopes are real, but do we think that, for example, kicking Donald Trump out of the union is going to lead to Vince Vaughn being censured or whatever. Like it, like it seems like there is in fact a meaningful distinction and difference. I'm not even talking, I'm not even talking about political stuff. I'm not even saying like people will get kicked out for their politics. I'm saying that like, once you start saying that every actor who does something bad and embarrassing needs to be kicked out of the union. But is anybody saying that is Trump's is Trump a stand in for every actor here? I don't see. I don't see why they wouldn't. I don't see why you. I don't see why you wouldn't have uh, an actor who is accused of. I don't know domestic abuse, right? Why? Why wouldn't there be a pressure campaign to get his SAG card stripped? I mean, I, again, I just think that Trump is so sui generis that he defies efforts at principled consistency. Um, and has, and that is part of the reason that he drives people so mad. Is because if you want to. If you want to go about Trump coverage and your approach to him in a way that is sort of reasonable and consistent and sort of applies to everyone, Trump's going to abuse it. And if you don't, then you're going to look like an ass for making a big deal out of Trump specifically and making him a a, a unique exception. Um, And it's very frustrating. And I I both understand, uh, you know, what you guys are saying about how this isn't SAG's business. And I also think that Trump is is different in some ways. Um, Again, he's not just somebody who even committed a crime. He was the president and that's, and it just makes him a a truly unique individual. Um, And in a a case that you can't draw sort of uh, rules that just consistently apply to everyone else. Alyssa. Because I'm our resident commie as well as our resident goody two shoes, I actually looked up the SAG after a bylaws, and it turns out that you can be uh, reprimanded, censured, fined, suspended, or expelled for, among other things, engaging in actions antagonistic to the interests or integrity of the union. Um, so theoretically, I guess you could say he is antagonistic to the interests or integrity of the union, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, he can be kicked out. It's it's a I, thing I, that there's a provision. Sure, for. but isn't yeah, but I mean, isn't but that I mean, kind of language anything, just there so that you fall can fall into that? Yeah. Anything Absolutely. could fall under that. I mean, that that that's an insane. That's an insane. Using, Absolutely. Using Trump's behavior, invoking this clause under Trump's behavior is like, is a it's a fig leaf. But the thing I was going to say, Peter, is you know you're talking about how um, Trump kind of bends the rules of what's normal to do, and I think in this period, it's really useful to take a minute and think about what is sort of personally gratifying to do uh, versus what is actually useful to do. And I mean, I'm talking about useful to the larger sort of cause of American democracy, reestablishment of guardrails. And so I see a lot of stuff that's going on right now, like David Hogg founding a company to compete with the my pillow guy, like hog pillows, <laughs> throwing Trump out of SAG, a real sleeper um, issue, keeping Kurt Schilling out of the Hall of Fame, like people not giving money to this like sleep consultant lady who helps babies learn to sleep, uh, who's been very effective for a number of my friends. Like this stuff is personally satisfying, but I'm not sure for the people who feel get to feel like they're doing something to like reestablish norms. Um, but I don't know what meaning any of it has, right? Um, and I think that, you know, focusing on like getting Marjorie Taylor Greene out of office. Like Trump is like the big bad, right? He's fun to fight. It's fun to feel like you're doing something to like, you know, 
kick him on when he's on his way out the door. But like, other than making you feel good about yourself, like it's sort of like, it's like everyone needs their last chance at an act of resistance chic, right? Like it's just, most of it is not actually that meaningful. And I think the most useful thing we could do to reestablish the guardrails of American democracy and prevent people like Trump from, you know, rising to power again is just evicting them from the space that they've been occupying rent-free in our heads and being really clear with ourselves about whether we're sort of feeding an addiction um, to the now ex-president or whether we're doing something meaningful. All right. So what do we think? Is it a a controversy or a non-troversy that Donald Trump threatened with ouster uh, from the Screen Actors Guild decided to quit on his own? Alyssa. Uh, it's a controversy, but only because he slandered the union's good name on his way out. They've done a ton for him. Uh, he is a liar once again. Communist. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter, what do what you think? I don't know. I think it's kind of a controversy because my strong hope is that we never really have to think about Donald Trump again unless we want to. And like this, this seems like an opportunity to avoid thinking about that where you could we like most people could just skip thinking about this. It's a controversy. I would say that it is a controversy that he uh, decided to leave because we should all be ignoring Donald Trump. We should not be paying tons of attention to his letters. I do think it's a controversy that he that there was talk in the union of kicking him out in the first place. I think it's a bad precedent, and I really don't think that the uh, the that SAG or any of the other unions should probably be getting into the business of uh, of of you know worrying about what their their people are doing outside of the uh, workspace. Um, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, uh, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode talking about the year's weak slate of Super Bowl movie ads uh, and what that suggests for the forthcoming year in entertainment. And now, on to the main event. Malcolm and Marie, uh, what do you get when international superstar Zendaya asks the creator of her HBO show Euphoria, Sam Levinson, to whip up a project she can bang out ahead of her Spider-Man 3 shoot? You get a 90-minute broadside against film Twitter. Uh, I am exaggerating, but only very slightly. John David Washington plays Malcolm, whose new movie has just debuted to rapturous praise, uh, while Zendaya plays Marie, Malcolm's long-suffering girlfriend slash muse, on whose life story uh, Malcolm's movie was apparently based. Over the course of a single night, the two argue about everything, art art and criticism, love and life, but mostly credit, and who should get credit for what. Uh, Malcolm failed to thank Marie at the premiere, you see, and it's causing her problems. She feels as if he has co-opted her life story. She resents that she wasn't chosen to play the lead, and she's furious to think that he's uh, she she's furious that he thinks he is so essential to her life that she'd never think to leave him. Malcolm, meanwhile, is mostly angry at critics. Uh, he can't stand their know-nothing efforts to jam everything into political boxes. He resents their efforts to racially categorize his work in the same realm as Spike Lee and Barry Jenkins. Uh, and he is annoyed that they don't know the difference between a steady cam and a dolly. He is simply aggravated by their efforts to politi politicize and racialize everything and how dumb they are. Um, here's Malcolm. I just want to read one short passage from the, the screenplay, which uh, the Hollywood Reporter was nice enough to post on their website. Uh, so here's Malcolm. Quote, I can't read this shit anymore. It's too fucking moronic. The fact that the LA Times would employ such a halfwit is beyond me. First, she says that I brilliantly subvert the white savior trope. She is a savior. She is trying to save her. So how did I subvert it? You know how, by being black. Because if I was white, she would have said that I fell for the trope. But because I'm a man, she can question my intentions, saying I'm reveling in the trauma of a woman. Better implied than depicted. What? Because Taylor has her shirt off. End quote. 
Now, the inability to think beyond tropes, the refusal to consider art on its own terms, the tendency to jam everything into dumb little boxes. Yes, Sam Levinson has a beef with film Twitter. It's amazing. Uh, rumor has it that this all goes back to the very mixed reception that his movie Assassination Nation, Assassination Nation, uh, received. And while I'd normally have more sympathy for our critical brethren here, I am all out of solidarity, uh, given the Corps' shameful silence at Variety's treatment of the freelancer Dennis Harvey, which we discussed at length on last week's show, and I'm not going to get into right here. Uh, but it is, I'm, 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 I'm not going to put up with critics whining about this when they didn't stand up previously. Um, the movie's fine, I guess. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. it it's got some interesting performances. It's got this nice black and white sheen to it. Um, it's kind of interesting that they they bang this out during the, uh, the, the lockdown. Fine. It's fine. Peter, uh, is this what it's like to be pandered to by the liberal media? Am I being pandered to with this movie? I mean, I think the real question is, are you pretending to be pandered to with like a screenplay that you obviously secretly co-wrote? No, so many no, of the I had nothing, nothing like watch this. watching this movie, so many of the monologues are just like, man, did Sonny write this? No, um, and and be, and that is one of the reasons why I kind of loved this movie. I think I liked it maybe better than both of you guys. It's just it's so raw. It's so exquisitely crafted. It, it it just does like some like basic movie stuff really well. I mean, it just indulges in the pleasures of the screen, right? You have these gorgeous performers and a fantastic location, this like moody, jazzy score. I think I'm not supposed to say jazzy according to this movie, um, but there is like, there's some great jazz on the score. It's great photography, but also I love actually the way that this film sets a trap for critics. Because the movie is, it's not entirely about the relationship between filmmakers and critics. It's also about a, an actual relationship and the relationship between creative partners, not just sort of between people who make art and people who write about it. Um, but it's heavily about that. And it both invites you to transmute Malcolm's views onto Sam Levinson's. And then it also suggests that you have absolutely no reason and no right to do that. So which is it? It's both. It's neither. And this movie is constantly sort of arguing with itself, which I, again, I really enjoy. And so to criticize the movie is in some ways to fall for its bait. But even liking the movie ends up being fraught, right? Because one of Malcolm's big mid-movie rants is this, is this like crazy complaint about a positive review. And I, I say crazy, not in like that it's necessarily wrong, but just in that it's sort of so verbose and like over the top. And he's just sort of entirely into it the entire time. Um, you know, and, and and it's a positive review that gets some minor filmmaking facts wrong, the Steadicam stuff, which is really kind of funny. And then the review insists on seeing the movie through the lens of Malcolm's race. And he becomes really offended by that, even though, again, the critic in question has written something calling him, you know, a genius for the ages or whatever. Uh, I really like the movie's verbosity. It's almost Sorkin-esque kind of just like love of dialogue and language. It's immediacy. And this is, I think, actually the, the thing that I want to talk about with you guys is this movie was obviously written in a pretty short period of time. We know that like it was the the genesis of this was we're in lockdown, we're bored, we got to do something. So it was it was written fast, it was filmed fast. Um and so what you end up with here and what what makes me enjoy sort of like what the reason that or one of the reasons that I've just kind of like 
that I find myself falling for this movie is that it's not a film that's been heavily fussed over. Um, this is not something that went through a year of development with studio executives uh, who were worried about every stray line, you know, offending test audiences, right? There was no effort to make this movie neat or easy in any way. And just that sense of messiness, the rawness, the kind of bile and the talky discursiveness of it, it's what makes it just really electric. And you get to see a pair of top-notch actors and a an interesting, smart young film director all kind of bum rush this material in a period of obviously high emotional stress, and they do it without a whole lot of filter, and the results are just just phenomenally interesting to watch. Alyssa, what did you make of Malcolm and Marie? Um, hmm. So I've watched it twice. I don't entirely know what I think of it. Um, and I agree that it's kind of a trap, right? Like anything you say about it is sort of condemned by the text of the movie itself. Um, I think one thing that is that I found sort of interesting about it um, is that it's, and I say this as a critic who writes sociopolitical criticism, it's right about the sort of tropes that a lot of critics have fallen into about sort of declaring everything, like praising a movie by declaring it important, right? Like conflating the statement that it makes with the quality of the filmmaking. Um, and, you know, finding whatever the movie is about and sort of grafting a story about, um, you know, what it's saying about a larger issue onto it. What the movie doesn't really acknowledge, except in a brief conversation about how um, Malcolm Starr has been sort of like talking about mental health on the red carpet, is that filmmakers have helped like very much played into this dynamic, right? Like this is a... Um, this is a... It takes two to tango. And yes, critics write this kind of thing. But directors and actors sensing that this is the way to a positive review now sell their movies as of sociopolitical importance on the red carpet all of the time whether it's like representation whether it's you know sort of glancing familiarity with an issue and you know i like i've been on a panel with bradley cooper while he's doing this you know it is something that hollywood is very actively you know selling and a dynamic that it has an interest in sort of exploiting, not least because as we've discussed in other contexts, it has a way of rendering a movie kind of bulletproof, right? Like if um, if the movie is important, it makes it harder to say bad things about it. And so it's very interesting to have a movie about a director who is sort of uncomfortable with this dynamic, but to sort of not acknowledge that. And then also, frankly, you know, not to discuss like the financing of the movie at all, right? I mean, I guarantee you, it's like there's this sort of reference to Malcolm getting financing at one point, but like there is no question that the f people who financed a movie like the one that he described, but that we don't actually see. The movie within the movie. Yes, the movie within the movie, right? Malcolm's movie would have been like, oh yeah, this is something that like we can do a bunch of panels about like mental health and the addiction industry. And like, this is the, like we have our sort of sociopolitical Oscar campaign set up right here, right? And so the movie is, you know, like weirdly vicious about critics. It's vicious about this sort of tendency in the industry, uh, in the sort of critical complex that I think does bear examining. Um, but it ignores the other sort of parts of the dynamic. Um, there is just, I mean, this is sort of a, a tendency that keeps amping itself up. Um, and I think it's like, you know, as critics, it's kind of silly to be defensive, right? I mean, you know, we don't 
make the stuff that we go out and talk about. People do. It's years of their lives. It's sort of even when it's really positive, it's like the cycle is over pretty fast. Then everyone's on to the next thing. Like I have a lot of sympathy for the sensitivities of artists, but if this is to a certain extent an issue movie and the issue being criticism has gotten too politicized and reductive, it's not actually a very good issue movie in terms of diagnosing the scope of the problem. Well, how how uh, how could he have better pushed back against it? I mean, it's not even so it's not even so much Malcolm's character, but I'm amazed that like Marie, who isn't sort of bringing this up, is like isn't sort of needling him about that dynamic a little bit more right and she does a little bit she's like you love political movies you're writing a biography of angela davis like you have this character who's actually very good at skewering the male leads uh, foibles um and she clearly could have been the voice who sort of brought a little bit more of that in do you don't you think that she is intended to make him look faintly ridiculous though oh yeah 100 percent. i mean i i I, this is this is another thing that i've 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 been kind of amused by reading some of the criticism is is that like the the idea that uh that malcolm is like correct right i mean he he loses the the argument with her about their about their relationship and he clearly to a certain extent is wrong about um sort of what exactly is happening in the racial dynamics of the review of the movie no question Depiction is not endorsement, as we as we like to say. Uh, and I think I think the I think the the film is a little a little more nuanced than than some of its critics have been uh, uh, getting at. But the you know what the the thing the other the the other kind of element of this that I that I uh, really really enjoy and and find uh, uh, kind of amusing is the idea that this whole film was made as a reaction to his previous film. Which means that this, so the, the 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 theory being that you know the mixed reviews of Assassination Nation uh, spurred him to write this kind of ranty screenplay, um, which means that it's aimed at like four hundred people. This movie, this entire production for Netflix, that's on the front page of Netflix in a hundred million homes right now, you know, is is essentially aimed at about uh, at about four hundred malcontents on Twitter. And I have to admire that sort of like really laser focused uh effort uh peter don't you don't you really just uh, get a kick out of that i again i appreciate your subtle and stealthy ghostwriting of a movie about how film twitter is bad and that's part of what i enjoyed about this um yeah i mean there's a way in which it's arguably too inside baseball for being a a mass uh product um at the same time though it's it is also a movie just about a relationship, about a, a, a creative person and yep. his muse uh, girlfriend, yep. right? And the ways that that their art and their business and their life intersect and intertwine and conflict and sort of get in the way of each other, right? And I don't know if I want to quite say that it's realistic, because it's obviously sort of highly compressed and dramatized and it, you know, sort of it, it does a bunch of uh, sort of theatrical tricks um, with the way that it structures this argument. Uh, at the same time, though, it is it is a movie that does try to kind of lance that relationship and and split it open um, and see what it is like um, in a way that is, I think, quite unusual in film to see an extended conversation between two people that just lasts an hour and 45 minutes or whatever this is, right? It's not 
totally unprecedented, right? There are the before sunrise movies that are basically an extended conversation of some sort, sometimes with a few other characters involved, um, and which I also really liked and which this reminded me of in certain ways. But it's about, I mean, in some ways he's, this movie is kind of arguing that, um, or maybe not arguing, but is at least suggesting that the relationship between creators, filmmakers, and their critics is similar to the to a to a kind of uh, boyfriend girlfriend, you know, sort of in close couple relationship, in which they're always talking to each other and never quite hearing each other, in which they're always kind of pointing out each other's flaws, but in in some ways that are right, but in some ways they're wrong about each other as well, right? And there's this shifting power balance and that the, obviously the, the filmmakers are making tons of money in a lot of ways. They're sort of operating at a level that a lot of film critics, you know, the majority of them, even like a sort of modestly successful filmmaker is just operating at a kind of level of creative and professional success that many, many film critics never ever achieve right at the same time it is the film critic who has the power over this person's ego and sort of and and gets to decide for posterity what uh you know sort of how the world is going to be uh will think about that work and so there's this really interesting sort of layers of of text and subtext and meta text that are going on here um in 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 a way that i think is it's more accessible than the, oh, this is just about 400 people on Twitter, um, knock might suggest. Though yeah. also there's- Not a knock. There's Not a knock, praise. Right, that, sorry. That was, that, a, that was praise. The, though uh, also the fact that it, it is for 400 people on Twitter and those people, many of those people, I think somewhat interestingly, are really mad. Really mad. They're they shouldn't mad. be really mad. Alyssa, uh, can we talk about the the actual performances here? Because what we are we are, what we are actually watching is two uh, very talented performers, kind of given the screen all to themselves for for large stretches of time. And the 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 scene, the image that has weirdly struck with me most uh, from this film is uh, John David Washington eating a bowl of mac and cheese <laughs> as aggressively as I've ever seen. I like I've seen murders on film that had less passion <laughs> and and violence in them than uh, John David Washington stabbing that mac and cheese and shoveling it in his mouth. Uh, but I mean, it's 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 a great it's a it's a weirdly physical performance for a movie that takes place entirely within a house, almost entirely within a house. They go outside into the backyard a couple times. But, you know, it's it is a it's a very physical turn from these two. Yeah. And sometimes in a way that feels a little overdirected, like yes, let's just send John David Washington out to, like, do some sort of weird dance purge thing for, like, several minutes in the dark, like, does not entirely land with me. Um, I mean, I I think I probably like Zendaya as an actress more than I like Washington at this point. Um, I've also probably seen her in somewhat more stuff, including the show that she does with Levinson, um, Euphoria. Um, and I think that one of, one of the things that I appreciate about her is, I mean, she is unbelievably gorgeous, but she also has like a kind of interesting plastic face and isn't afraid to use it to look weird or gross or sad. Um, there's a reason that she's like plausible as the kind of nerdy chick in the spy in the current Spider-Man franchise. I can't Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man uh, Far From Home. I just mean like there's there there have been so many Spider-Man iterations that like the current Spider-Man movies. Understood. Um, Understood. And so I I mean the scene here in uh, Malcolm and Marie when she uh, 
like pretends to be threatening him with the knife and then actually is like doing a scene from his movie back at him, which he doesn't recognize because he's so freaked out by her, um, is probably my favorite scene in the movie because it lets you see just the full range of what she can do, right? Like she can be tweaked out and crazy and she can also just be like sort of maliciously funny um, in a way that I really enjoy. Um, I, I like that scene because it seemed like... Uh, it seemed like the movie was sort of toying with, I mean, it's toying with a viewer in a lot of ways and saying, you know, we could have made a bad movie in which like at the very end, she gets like, she finds the drugs and it's just, she relapses yeah. and it's all about, right. And like, it, it is again, it's like, there's so many layers of meta commentary on like what a bad third act would have looked like here and, and how it would have resolved, you know, and, and all of the dumb ways that this movie could have, could have gone. And like, you, you almost imagine them having a conversation about like, man, a bad movie would have ended like, and then they're like, ooh, ooh yeah. but what if we had like a trick bad ending? But it also implies that the ending of Malcolm's movie is bad because it's tragic, right? It's like, it's this yeah. <laughs> cliche. Yeah, it's, it's, he has made a movie of sentimental bullshit probably. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what was your, what was your favorite performance moment? In, in the movie. Um, I So, I mean, I, I really liked both of these performances. I liked the way they played off of each other. Um, I liked John David Washington's uh, rants and dancing. and I But I particularly liked the opening rant in which he is just circling the couches, right? And just circling and circling and circling, like at one point, like jumping up on the windowsill. And I actually think it's it's a little over the top, but it does capture a certain kind of of energy that happens to creators, to people after they have like, when they're coming off of a a performance high. And if you've ever been on stage, if you've ever sort of had like a a, a moment, um, you know, in front of a big group, uh, in front of an audience that you feel like went really well, it, it does just sort of get into your blood for a couple of hours or sometimes a couple of weeks or day, you know, for a while. And you're just, you, you're just a little bit nuts. Um, when that happens, and he captures that so well. I also like this, like, his, just, I, I, I liked the subtle goofiness of his performance, right? And it's, it is, again, this clever undermining of his character. It, like, there's this suggestion that actually he's a little bit ridiculous, even though the movie also is not treating him just as a cartoon character. He's a little bit of a goofball, right? Who is like, who is, a, who is not just full of himself, but also kind of like a nutty, you know, he's like, he's a, he's a little bit clownish. Um, and that's, it's an interesting wrinkle to his persona that you just don't get to see that sort of level of character creation um, in movies of forget you know these days but really ever at all it's it's a it's a really remarkable performance um i think from both of them um and they're also just they're so great to look at like i could just i could watch this movie on mute or only with the with the jazzy soundtrack right again the jazzy uh and and just like just be happy watching these two extraordinarily beautiful yes but also super interesting people just like faces and bodies that are so that are just like so magnetizing right you just sort of can't help but be like oh i'm i'm just going to watch them now
I will say one thing that interferes with that a little bit for me is um, is the age difference. Um, and that's something the movie deals with in text a little bit. Um, but John David Washington is my age and Zendaya is the same age as my 12 years younger brother. And the movie kind of touches on the fact that like Malcolm met Marie when she was a 20 year old junkie um, and he would have been 32 at that point. Um, and they're both very attractive. There's like a, you know, but watching the movie, I wasn't sure whether I was rooting for them to like work their stuff out and get back together or if I was just rooting for her to get out of there. Um, because I think there is just a, you know, and age gaps like that have a long history in Hollywood, right? I mean, leading men routinely got to be 10 or even 20 years older than the women that they were playing against, but especially in a movie that's about power as much as this one. Um, even though the two of them are very attractive, even though they have sexual chemistry, there is that sort of note there that kept resounding for me in a way that made it a little difficult to just purely enjoy it. Yeah, I, you know, I thought about that too a bit when I was watching it, but I, it, it wasn't entirely clear to me what age John David Washington's yeah. character is supposed to be. I mean, he feels like a younger director. He feels like a... Uh, a director at the beginning, uh, although, very much be, at the beginning of his career. Although to be fair, a lot of people by the time they get a first feature, de- like developed and directed, sure, late twenties, totally, early thirties. Totally. Um, yeah. I also wanted to shout out the uh, the forty Legos and a Mule uh, conversation, I, which I think is actually the thing that critics should feel most indicted by. Um, totally. Because it I, is it's just a great argument that the like, yes, it's good that Ryan Coogler is getting absorbed into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and like will be part of that orb forever. Like that's progress and victory. Uh, it's like we're getting a lady directed Captain Marvel movie. It's like the total assimilation of independent talent by major franchises that a lot of critics have sort of fallen for as a gesture of inclusion is like, in fact, one of the greatest sort of corporate bits of jujitsu of all time, right? Like you can make a bajillion shows that are like, you know what? The military industrial complex is freaking awesome as long as a lady directs it, right? Like it's the most hilariously regressive thing ever. And like that conversation is really well written. It's really well directed. It's one of the few like really warm moments between the characters. Um, I thought that was great, and like that's actually what critics should be get really getting really upset about. I'm really excited yeah. for Sam Levinson's Lego Movie starring Zendaya. A hundred percent. That'd be great. That'd have be great. either of you watched um, any of like Bar- uh, so Sam Levinson's the son of Barry Levinson? Have you watched any of his Baltimore movies? Um, cause in a way, part of what this reminded me of is Tin Men, um, which is, have either of you seen Tin Men? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that one. I've seen Diner. All right. Tin Men is awesome. Um, it basically, it stars Richard Dreyfuss and Danny DeVito as rival, um, siding salesmen in Baltimore who decide to destroy each other in this just like escalating campaign of cruelty. Um, but it's specific and like interested in nastiness and people who can still really love each other after being nasty to each other um in a way that i think is very resonant here uh it's also just a great movie highly recommended i mean obviously my favorite barry levinson film is wag the dog but i also uh you know i'm i'm glad that he gave us an adaptation of uh of michael Crichton's sphere on that note uh so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down on malcolm and marie Alyssa? uh thumbs up but definitely not on date night peter uh, several thumbs up. Thumbs up for me as well. That's three thumbs up. Good job, Malcolm Emery. Um, 
That is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about the Super Bowl slate of movie and TV advertisements at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends about the show. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Yeah.